All right. Good morning, everyone. So am, am I on here? Okay. All right. So as Don said this morning, Bryce and Nisha are out of town. Uh, and so he asked me to give the lesson today. And this is the point where Bryce normally likes to cover the key scripture and introduce the message. Um, well, we're not going to look at the key scripture, but I do have a key question for you. So the question is, how do ideas or beliefs impact reality? And so let me, let me ask that again. How do ideas or beliefs impact reality? Now, you're probably wondering why I have the ladder out here. Well, I like to multitask, so I thought I'd get up here and fix the Wi-Fi while I'm giving this. Well, no, just kidding. Uh, seriously, last, last week, uh, Randy brought this out as, as a prop for the kids' lesson, and, and I thought it was such a great prop that I'd use it, uh, use it today. So let me ask you, if I was to climb up this ladder all the way to the top and jump off, what would happen? Yeah, I'd get hurt. Would, would I float away? Why not? Gravity, right. Everybody knows about gravity, even if you couldn't, can't explain it in scientific terms. When I was preparing for this, I asked Ivy. I was like, Ivy, do you know about gravity? And she's like, yes. And I was like, well, let me check. And so, Ivy, what is gravity? And she said, well, it's like invisible hands that pull you down. And I'm like, close enough, yes. So we all understand that if I climb up this ladder and jump, it's not going to be good. But let me ask you, what if I really, really, really believed that I could fly? If I jumped off the ladder, am I going to fly? Okay, what about if all of you really believed that I could fly? What if we all were absolutely convinced and believed that I could fly? Would I fly? You're right. It would be disastrous. But, and here's the key, if I believed I could fly, or if you all believed I could fly and convinced me that I could fly, I might jump off that ladder. And that would totally change my reality. See, beliefs and ideas don't change the physical reality. The force of gravity does not care what we believe. Okay? But what we believe the ideas that we accept, they change our perception of reality. And they influence and impact the decisions that we make. And those decisions that we make impact our reality. You know, if I had a faulty perception of reality, if I believed I could fly and I jumped off that ladder, you know, I might end up in the hospital. Or I might even end up dead. And, and so my beliefs impact my decisions, which impact my physical reality. And not, and not just my reality. I mean, if I was to die, not only would, I, you know, would my life be over, but that would totally change Ivy's life. You know, she would have to grow up without her father. And so beliefs and ideas are powerful. And they have consequences and we're going to talk about that more in the lesson. So thank you. 
All right, welcome back, everyone. Uh, so, so there is nursery and stuff, but the rest of the kids are going to be in here. So, okay, well, it doesn't look like anybody's bolted out of the door, so, uh, so that's a good thing. You know, there's, there's a real danger in having the introduction and then a break before the message, you know. Uh, it's real easy for somebody to decide, you know, I've heard enough of this guy, I'm getting out of here. It's a little harder to get up in the middle of somebody speaking. But Sigrid told me a great tactic on how to do that. If you have little kids and you want to get out of a boring sermon, you just have them, you know, say in a really loud voice, I got to go potty. And then you just get up and you walk with them right out the back door. Now, when you do that, make sure you look absolutely mortified and apologize profusely and, and ignore everybody else glaring at you. They're just mad that they didn't think of it or that they didn't have a small child to do that. <laughs> and, 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 but I will say, parents, if your children are teenagers or adults, it's just not going to work, so, so don't even try it. But okay, let's get going. So tell me, who likes superhero movies? Any Marvel fans? I love Marvel, and I can't wait for the new Captain Marvel movie and the new Avengers movie coming out this year. Uh, but you know, really, it's, it's not just superhero movies, it's any action movie. You know, I, I like all kinds of action movies where there's really intense you know, fight scenes and everything. But you know, I've had a real problem with watching those kind of movies ever since I was a little kid. Anytime there's, you know, a fight scene, I find myself in my seat moving and dodging and, you know, like, like I'm actually fighting. And, and you know, that's, that's okay when you're a little kid, but it's kind of weird when you're an adult, you know. So every time I catch myself doing that, you know, I, I try to force myself to be still. But then it looks like I'm just having some sort of fit or spasm. I'm like... It's, it's really entertaining to watch, I'm sure. But, you know, I, I love action movies and action stories. I, I love the great military heroes and warriors in the Old Testament, like David and his mighty men, you know, or Samson. I love how, how Samson struck down a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. You know, or how Eleazar, one of David's mighty men, stood his ground when the entire Israelite army fled before the Philistines. And all day he struck down the Philistines until his hand grew so tired that it froze to his sword. I mean, that's just awesome. You know, but it's not just the Old Testament that talks about warfare. The New Testament talks about warfare as well. But it's a very different type of warfare. And, and Aaron actually was, you know, was trying to steal my thunder uh, with bringing up Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. And I'm glad he didn't. And good, it's on the screen. And it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, 
with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. And here Paul is using the image of a Roman centurion's battle gear, which his audience would have been very familiar with. And he uses that to describe the spiritual warfare that we as Christians engage in. So Paul uses the physical components of a centurion's weapons and armor to describe the weapons and the armor that we use in our our spiritual warfare. Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. But how do we actually engage in spiritual warfare? As Paul says, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're not going out beating up people or killing people. So what does spiritual warfare mean? And there's many different aspects of it, but what I want to focus on today is that spiritual warfare is a battle over beliefs and ideas to win the hearts and minds of people. And in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, Paul says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And I love this passage. You know, Paul says that our weapons have divine power. That means they have the power of God to demolish strongholds and arguments and every pretension, or as the Net Bible says, every arrogant obstacle raised against the knowledge of God. And first, you know, I want you all to notice that we're on the attack here. You know, we're not hiding in our strongholds, hiding from the enemy. We're taking the fight to the enemy, and we're destroying the enemy's strongholds. But what are those enemy strongholds? Well, they're the false ideas, the false narratives, the false beliefs, that Satan uses to keep people from understanding and seeing the true spiritual reality and their need for Jesus Christ. Now, how many of you remember the 1999 movie, The Matrix? Okay. Now, 
If you didn't see it, sorry, I'm going to, you know, spoil the plot. And I make no apologies. You've had 20 years to see this movie. But for those of you who haven't seen it, it's a sci-fi story and it takes place in the future where humanity is unknowingly trapped inside this simulated reality called the Matrix that was created by machines to control the humans while they're using their bodies as an energy source. So basically, all of humanity, everybody's trapped in these pods where you're fed through a tube and the biological energy that your body produces is used to power these machines. And everybody's plugged into this computer simulation called the Matrix. And so they think they're in the real world. They think they're living their, their lives, you know, growing up, going to school, working, getting married, all, all these things. But in reality, they're trapped in these pods, enslaved by the machines. And see, the whole point of the Matrix was to prevent them from seeing the truth, from seeing reality so that the machines could keep them enslaved. And similarly, in the real world, Satan has also created a matrix to keep humanity enslaved. You see, the Bible gives us the true view of reality. But Satan tries to fool us with a delusion. The matrix is the web of lies that Satan has woven to blind the minds of the unbelievers and to destroy the faith of believers. So what does this matrix look like? Well, on one hand we have all the false religions that draw people away from the one true God. All throughout history we've had fake religions, false gods, from the Canaanite gods that plagued Israel to the Greek and Roman gods that the early church confronted, to our modern-day Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, New Age religions, and even atheistic religions like secular humanism. And all false religions try to answer the fundamental questions that I believe that God has put in each of and every one of our hearts. Where did we come from? Why are we here? And what happens when we die? They're all false competing narratives to the truth that we have in the Bible. They're all meant to give people something that they can believe in and hold on to that will insulate them from the truth of the gospel. For example... If I believe that Allah is the one true God and that anybody who doesn't worship Allah is an infidel, then you're going to have a really hard time even talking to me about Jesus Christ. I mean, if I believe that Allah is God and the Koran is the truth, then by definition the Bible must be false. So why would I even talk to you about that? You know, if I've already decided that in my mind... And so you see, false religions inoculate people against the truth. Then we have all the attacks against the Bible. You know, oh, don't you know that science has disproven the Bible? 
The Big Bang created the universe 14 billion years ago, and life spontaneously arose 3 billion years ago. Oh, and archaeology has disproven the Bible. You know, the Exodus really didn't happen like the Bible says. Oh, Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible. They were written by many different people, you know, over many centuries. All those prophetic books that predicted things decades or even centuries before they happened, oh, they were really written after the historical events happened. You know, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. You know, his disciples stole his body from the tomb. You know, oh, the Bible contains thousands of mistakes and contradictions. And on and on and on, the attacks just keep on coming. You know, and finally, Satan tries to pervert biblical morality and and to demonize, no pun intended, anyone who takes a stand for what is right. Oh, abortion isn't killing a baby. It's a woman's reproductive health right. Oh, you believe that God created us male and female? You know, oh, then you're, you're, you're transphobic. Oh, you believe that marriage is between a man and a woman and homosexuality is a sin? Oh, you're homophobic. You know, if you take a stand against any immoral, anti-biblical ideal being promoted by Satan, then you're going to be labeled as a fill-in-the-blank phobic. Now, as a side note, I I want to say this. You know, unfortunately, and, and Bryce talked about this last week, Unfortunately, sometimes as Christians, we do have to own those labels because of our sinful actions. You know, for example, if I stood outside of an abortion clinic and yelled murderer or baby killer at at a woman coming out of an abortion clinic, that would be awful. That would be absolutely unchristlike. You you know, those women, you know, they have probably made the most agonizing and difficult decision that they'll ever make in their life. And they have to live with the guilt and the consequences for the rest of their life. You know, they need to be shown the love and the forgiveness and the compassion of Jesus Christ. They, they need us to wrap our arms around them and comfort them, not condemn them. You know, on the other hand, it is perfectly righteous to stand up and oppose the arguments and the efforts of individuals and organizations that promote and try to normalize abortion. I, and I hope you can see there's a huge difference. You know, and, and you've probably all heard the saying, love the sinner, hate the sin. You know, and that is absolutely true. You know, unfortunately, you know, we've not always done a great job of following that. But even when we do, if you take a stand for what is right, you will be attacked. Now, as you can see, the matrix is a whole web of false ideas and false narratives to delude the world and keep the people from seeing the truth. So when we talk about spiritual warfare, we're talking about destroying that matrix destroying the illusion so that people can have a life-saving encounter with the real Jesus. But, but notice, the matrix is not the same for all people 
in all places throughout all time. Satan uses different false religions, different false beliefs and ideas for different people in different places and so on. And we can see this if we look at just a couple of biblical examples in the book of Acts. So in, in Acts 2, we have the day of Pentecost when Peter gets up and he preaches the first church sermon to a crowd of religious Jews who had come from all over the Roman world to come to Jerusalem and worship and celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And so he gets up and he, and he weaves together masterfully a number of Old Testament scriptures to prove that Jesus is the Messiah that Israel had been waiting for. And he ends his sermon with a passage that is very familiar to us. He says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, now let's think about Peter's audience. What was the matrix that was keeping them from Jesus? I mean, they were actually very close to the truth. You know, they knew God, Jehovah. They had the foundation of the whole Old Testament. You know, they had the law. But many of them, while they were legalistically keeping the letter of the law, they had totally lost the spirit of the law and the heart behind the law. They had the prophets, you know, which foretold and, predict, and predicted the coming of the Messiah. But they had all these expectations of this earthly Messiah who was going to be this great warrior king who would, you know, like David, who would come and overthrow the Roman Empire and, and Israel would, you know, would, would be a free nation again and rule the world. So they had all these expectations. And so Peter needed to use the Old Testament to prove to them, you know, that Jesus was the Messiah. He needed to help them get past all of these preconceptions and really see the truth. And of course, we see 3,000 people baptized that day, which is awesome. And then we look at Paul. And Paul, when he would go into a new city, he would go to the Jews first, usually in the synagogues. And he would argue from the Old Testament very much like Peter did. But when he preached to the Gentiles, he took a very different approach, as we can see in Acts 17, beginning in verse 22, which says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. So with the Gentiles, Paul takes a completely different approach than with the Jews because they're in a totally different place. They don't know the one true God. They don't have the foundation of the Old Testament. You know, they, they believed in a pantheon of gods that controlled all aspects of your lives. So if you needed rain for your crops, you would pray and offer a sacrifice to one God. You know, if you were a woman and you weren't able to have children, you'd pray to another God and so on. You know, and they were, and they were so afraid of offending you know, some God that maybe they didn't even know about, that, that they had this altar to an unknown God. And, and, you know, so Paul has to meet them where they're at. You know, he, he, does, he can't just jump into Old Testament scripture, you know, to, to talk about Jesus. And so he starts his argument with this altar that he saw, you know, to, to an unknown God. You know, you worship an unknown God, let me tell you who the true God is. And at the end, when he tells them about the resurrection of the dead in Jesus, a lot of them sneer. You know, a lot of them are like, ah, this is a bunch of garbage. You know, but others wanted to hear more from him. You know, and so he had the opportunity to then talk to them in more detail, and many of them became believers. And you, you see, it's... it's very rare that destroying the matrix is just a one shot, you know, Hulk smash, the whole thing collapses. You know, usually it's like peeling an onion, you know, where you have to remove one layer of deceit at a time until, until the truth is finally exposed. All right, so what does that have to do with us? Well, 
Last week, Bryce talked about one of our core values, go. As in, go make disciples. Go evangelize. Go bring people to Christ. You know, how, however you want to say it. And we looked at Matthew 28, 18-20, which says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Okay, great. But how do we actually do that? Well, I've been in a few different churches and I've seen basically two different approaches. The first, first approach I've seen is to try to evangelize through serving. And churches that take this approach uh, focus on things like providing meals to the homeless, sheltering the homeless, running food pantries, helping with disaster relief, and so on. And, and here at Sonoma Avenue, you know, for years, we, we had a Monday night ministry uh, to feed the homeless. We've participated in the, in the nomadic shelter program for the homeless. We helped with the disaster relief for the fires, uh, what, I think two years ago now. I've, I've totally lost track of time. Now, please hear me on this. These are good things. And I absolutely believe that God is pleased when we do these things. And and it's especially good for our hearts to do these things. But my experience has been that they're very ineffective as an evangelism tool. You know, I I, I, personally, I can't recall anyone uh, becoming a Christian through such programs. Now, that doesn't mean that no one's ever been saved, um, but I would dare to say not many. And, you know, even Jesus fed, you know, he had thousands of people following him around for a free meal, but few of them actually became his disciples. Okay, so, so I want to reiterate, these are good things, and I, and I do believe that God calls us to do them, but I don't think they're very effective for evangelism. The second approach I've seen is to go out and very actively and aggressively invite people to church and to other events. And the goal here is to draw people into our orbit. You know, get them to church or to a party or another event with Christians, get to know them, and ultimately convince them to study the Bible. And when I was a part of those activities, you know, we would go out to the mall or we would go door knocking and invite people out to church or special events. And we would always try to get people's numbers you know, so that we could follow up them, follow up with them and keep bugging them, I mean, keep encouraging them, you know, to, to come out to church or, or to some event. Now, this approach is fairly effective. You know, I can honestly say that I wouldn't be a Christian, that I wouldn't be here, uh, standing here today, if it wasn't for this approach. And the reality is, most churches in the United States today, are shrinking and dying. And the few churches that are growing or maintaining 
are generally not converting people to Christ. Generally, they pull in members from smaller churches because the bigger churches have, you know, better programs, you know, better music, more dating opportunities for singles, you know, and so on. Or because the smaller churches are, are closing their doors. And so the few members who are left end up going to these bigger churches. Um, now, those churches that, that practice aggressive evangelism, like I just talked about, you, you know, they're some of the few churches that, that actually are converting people to Christ. But having said that, I don't believe that this approach by itself, is going to win the world for Christ. Yes, you will see some people saved. You know, I'm an example of that. But you're never going to see mass conversions like the, like the early church experienced because you're not attacking the root problem. You're not attacking the matrix itself. You know, trying to pull one individual at a time, out of the matrix, it's time-consuming. It's exhausting. And ultimately, I believe, it's ineffective at really winning the world. I truly believe that the only way to win the war is for the church as a whole, not just Sonoma Avenue, but the church you know, across the country, worldwide, and us as individual Christians to stand up and fight for the truth. You know, the truth of the gospel, the truth of biblical morality, and and to demolish the matrix. And that's the example that we see in the Bible, and particularly in the book of Acts. You see Peter, Paul, Stephen, Philip, Apollos, Timothy, and, and many more. You know, they all took a stand publicly. They took the fight you know, this fight over beliefs and ideas, they took it to the people, they took it to the enemy. And they preached, you know, they, they, they challenged the false ideas of their day and they preached the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they demolished the enemy strongholds and the arguments and the arrogant obstacles raised against the knowledge of God and they allowed people to see the truth. And turned to Jesus. And what was the result? Christianity exploded through the Roman world. So why aren't we experiencing the same results today? Why are we seeing the culture become more and more anti-Christian? Instead of becoming more Christ-like? I believe it's because the church has been passive for too long and has allowed Satan to shape the culture rather than the church shaping the culture. And it's time for the church to get back into the fight to tear down the matrix and to win the world for Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for being an amazing God. We thank you that you have all the power. Father, we face an enemy in this spiritual warfare that is far stronger than we are. But God, we know that you 
are far stronger than our enemy. And God, we pray so much that you'll be with us. And Father, I know that I have probably frustrated most of the people listening to this message. That why didn't I give you know, examples of, of what we need to do? How do we go out and, and do this? Well, Father, you know I don't have the answers, but you do. I have ideas, but you have the answers. I pray, Father, that our hearts are stirred. God, that we embrace this call to be spiritual warriors, that we embrace this call to go out and take on the matrix and tear it down, that we can see the culture won over for you. God, I, I pray so much, Father, that, uh, you know, that we have been praying, what do you want us to change? Who do you want us to be as a church and as individuals? And God, that we will really truly consider this. And Father, I know that this can be a scary thought um, for many of us. I know it's scary and challenging to me. Uh, but God, you have given us the victory. Father, Jesus died on the cross. He was lowly and despised, but now he's been raised and glorified and he has all the power. And God, I just pray that we'll remember that and Father, that, that we'll sing about that with our next song. God, we love you, and it is in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.